Man, it is, it is good to be here today. Um, just some weeks, man, it's just more exciting than others. I don't know why that is, like just an admission. Like some weeks, it's just exciting. Like I get excited by about Tuesday for Sunday. Like Sundays are not, like they're not what identifies us. They're not uh, who we are, but man, they do reflect who, they do reflect who we are. But it's not, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just rambling, but I'm just excited to be here. I'm excited to worship, excited to, to, le- to listen and learn and um, yeah, I'm just glad you're here. Really, really glad you're here. Uh, today, we're, we're back in First John. We've got this week and one more week, like we talked about last week. Uh, John was kind of circling the runway, getting ready to bring the plane in. Today, like he's on final approach. Like I don't, we grew up with airplanes in our backyard, which was kind of strange. Uh, we had a grass strip in our backyard. My uncle was a pilot and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we had like Cessnas and Pipers and Moonies and and I remember, like, my uncle, like, we'd go up and fly, like, after school, which was a crazy childhood and probably something that children shouldn't get to experience because it ruins the rest of their life. Like, hey, you want to go home and fly? Sure, why not? But I remember, like, you would always circle the runway and get your eye on it, and then you would, you would line yourself up a good ways away, give yourself plenty of time in case anything was going to happen, especially in a, on a redneck uh, dogleg grass strip to make sure that you didn't die. And uh, so this is where John is. Like, John is kind of, man, he's circled the runway, he's looked, everything's good, and now he's spotted the runway, and he's getting ready to, to bring the plane in as far as this letter goes to the people in and around Ephesus. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 6 through 12 this morning. And, I, you know, my wife would probably say, I told you so, but... We were making sure that our coffee maker and everything still worked today uh, because we're going to start bringing some coffee back next week, which may not sound like a big deal, but it's important to have coffee when we worship Jesus. But I probably had a few too many cups today, and so I'm sweating already. Um, And so I'm going to try my best to do some breathing exercises in the midst of of reading this. But just to give us an idea as to where we are, um, I don't know if you grew up watching Reading Rainbow or not, but I did. Like, I loved Reading Rainbow. I wish they would bring it back. And I found out a couple of years ago that LeVar Burton, who was the host of Reading Rainbow, later on Star Trek, The Next Generation, which came on at 10 o'clock every night when I was in middle and high school, and I watched every episode, but I'm not a Trekkie, but man, I love Star Trek. But anyway, uh, he had this catchphrase in the show, and a couple of years ago, apparently there was a legal battle over this catchphrase. And so, you know, every episode of the show, he would introduce something and he would say this thing, but a couple of years ago, he started a campaign to bring Reading Rainbow back, but the people that owned it, they were like, "You, you can't say that. And so there was this huge ensuing battle. And I don't even know if you remember, like, the catchphrase. But to set it up, the way that it would happen is he would bring out a book. And he's like, hey, I'm going to tell you about a book today. And, you know, he, he had way better words than I do. But, but he would talk about the book, and, and he would, you know, show some pictures and do all this kind of stuff and do, like, an audio book report kind of a deal. And then he would say, but if, if you like this book, but you would like to have, you know, to read a couple more that are like it, here are some. But then he would say his catchphrase. Do you remember what his catchphrase was? Anybody? What is it? Yeah, Neil Culler remembers, but you don't have to take my word for it. Man, this is John today. Like John today is, he's going to be in these six verses. uh, He's basically saying the same thing. He's like, but you don't have to take my word for it. Because over the past several chapters of this book, what John's been doing is he's been laying out, not a case per se, but like this series of if-then statements, this series of, of indicators as to whether or not we're united with Jesus. If we're united with Jesus and Jesus is in us, then certain parts of our life should look differently. There are things that should be there. There are things that shouldn't be there. Things like light and things like love, things like love for the Father, things like obedience, like we talked about last week. And so today, like, he's going to give a little more credibility to everything that he's saying 
And, and basically what he's going to be doing is he's going to be like, look, I've said all of these things to you as someone who walked with Jesus, someone who is there, and now someone who has seen a lot of you grow from, from infant to mature believer or from somebody that didn't even know Jesus to someone that does. But I want to tell you that uh, you don't have to take my word for it. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's start. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do because we talked about the language issue a little bit. In First John, it becomes a bit evident that translating Koine Greek to English, there, there are some issues that come into play. And so we're going to read it in an essentially literal ESV, which is generally what I teach from, but we're going to throw up the New Living Translation after that, which is going to help us a little bit. So let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 12, and then we'll, uh, we'll throw up that alternate translation and kind of talk through what's going on. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll go. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that uh, your word is not validated by us, but it's validated by you that it's authoritative and it's trustworthy because it comes from your heart through men to these pages that we can look at, that we can base our understanding of you, we can base our understanding of life, we can base our understanding of us on these. Thank you for making it trustworthy and authoritative. I pray as we read it, God, that you would speak to us, that you would make us look more and more like Jesus, uh, continuing to grow us into the bride that the groom so rightly deserves. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 6. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning the Son, his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And, that, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so at the very end of the passage that we read last week, John kind of concluded with this idea that uh, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he kind of left us hanging with that to a degree, but then today he wants to validate that by saying, okay, if I'm bringing up Jesus again, I, I want to remind you uh, as to who he is and under what authority can we believe that. Uh, I know that the language in this first section is a little bit choppy, so we're going to throw up the New Living Translation a little bit and, and read that out loud. It kind of, the New Living Translation is, it's not necessarily a paraphrased translation, but it's going to move things into modern English a little bit. It's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation instead of a word-for-word, word, so sometimes it's a bit more readable. Uh, it has its drawbacks, but we'll talk about some of its, its values today. It says, And Jesus Christ, starting in verse 6, was revealed as God's Son by His baptism in water and by shedding His blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with His testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God, and God has testified about His Son. And so, like I said, John's kind of going into this saying, look, I've talked to you about Jesus. I've told you about all the things that are a result of being united with Jesus, these if-then statements. And he's like, but I don't want you just to think that it's just my words. I want you to understand that before me, there was testimony going out about who this Jesus was, what he could do, and why we needed to believe in him. And he throws out three in this particular passage. Um, there's been a lot of debate about one of these uh, before we get into it, because he mentions the water, the blood, and the spirit. 
the water has created quite a stir over the past several hundred years. I know you may not have heard about the stir because it's more theological than political, but either way, like it's been much debated. Um, but if we read the New Living Translation, uh, it's going to kind of line up with where most historians believe and where most scholars are going to believe this particular passage is pointing us to. So again, John says, you don't have to take my word for it. There are three witnesses that attest to not just the validity of, but the authenticity and the trustworthiness of Jesus. He says the first is the water. He says, this is he who came by water and blood. The water would be referring to Jesus' baptism. And so, like, if we think back, and we can even throw it up on the screen of Matthew chapter 3. Um, we'll go ahead and put that up there. We'll read through this, and we'll talk about it a bit. It says, this is he who came... Oh, pardon me. Go to, yeah, that's First John. We're getting there. Maybe. Click, click. Boom. I'll flip there. We'll get there. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. If somebody yells at me, you can just tell me when it's up there. Did it not go in this morning? That could be my bad. So in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, he said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John is pointing to this event as the first proof and the first piece of huge evidence that we don't have to take just John's word for it, but we can take Jesus' words authentically. This would have been something that would have been witnessed by potentially thousands of people. This baptism. Most of the time we see it and we assume uh, that it was just this quiet event, but in reality, John the Baptist had maybe thousands of people that were following him, looking towards him, listening to him. Not many of the religious bought into what he was saying, but a lot of the people that were outside of the religious establishment, they were hearing John the Baptist talk about things like preparing the way for the Messiah, and they were like, man, this is really interesting. We've been hearing about these stories since we were kids. My grandparents told us to them because they had been hearing about them since they were kids, and their, their grandparents told them to them because they had been hearing about it since they were kids. And so thousands of people were out in the wilderness near the River Jordan watching John baptize people in, in kind of this profession of repentance, kind of an idea, a, a, a symbolic uh, production of, I have repented of my sins, I've been cleansed of my sins, and I am awaiting the Messiah. So potentially thousands of people would have witnessed the baptism of Jesus. It's very likely that a couple of the disciples were even there, because some of the disciples that were disciples of John the Baptist later became disciples of Jesus. Uh, the twelve weren't there yet in full context, because he hadn't called them yet, but many people saw this. And what they saw was something completely out of the ordinary, completely out of perception, just completely out of the norm. They saw a guy that people had already been looking at, saying that he was a bit different, a bit special, uh, had more wisdom than he should, had more knowledge than he should, yet he was the son of a carpenter, and he walks out into the wilderness, and he gets baptized. And when he does, the heavens open up, the skies split, and the Spirit of God, like, I know, we can't even picture it, the Spirit of God falls down from the sky onto this guy, and thousands of people would have seen it. That's not normal. 
Like, that's not the norm. Like, we've watched baptisms here. We celebrate baptism. It's like a chance for us to party, but that's never happened when we do baptism. We'll have people clap. We'll have people sing. We'll have some people cry, but we've never seen the skies split, and we've never seen the Spirit descend like a dove onto any of them. That would be odd. That would be unusual. That would be a once-in-an-eternity kind of deal. And then not only that, right after that happened, it even says here that God spoke. God, the Father from heaven spoke, and he said, This is my Son whom I love, and in him I am completely and utterly pleased. Thousands of people would have seen this. John's saying, look, you you don't have to take my word for it. Like, understand that thousands of people have seen this. They've been talking about it since it happened. That's not normal. That is unusual. That is holy and peculiar that that would happen. He said, no, look to that. That's a testimony. The water, the baptism of Jesus. The second is, man, at the other end of the spectrum of Jesus' life. Not at the the ascension part, but before that. He said, we have three that testify. We have the water, which we're most likely assuming is referring to the baptism. Second to that is the blood. We look to the cross as the testimony of who this is. Because just like the baptism was out of the ordinary, not normal, completely holy, completely peculiar, man, the death of Jesus was the same thing, and tragic, and beautiful, same time. Like if we go back to Isaiah and we read about like prophetically 700 plus years before it ever happened about how this would occur, that he would be led like a sheep to the slaughter and not utter a word in his defense, imagine the oddness of a man who could have just spoken on his own behalf and gotten off all the charges. Because all Jesus had to do when he was accused of blasphemy is produce two to three witnesses in their particular court. And that's the reason this passage is pretty interesting, too. It's saying there are three witnesses. This is an Old Testament idea. There would always need to be two to three witnesses uh, to be produced in a court back then to say that, yes, this is true. All Jesus needed to do to get off of these fake charges of, that would lead him to the cross and death was to produce two or three people to say, no, he, he didn't say that. He didn't do that. But instead, he knew that he had to go to the cross. He knew that he had to be led to the cross, ultimately die as the perfect sacrifice for us, which we talked about last week, yet he said nothing. The baptism, peculiar, holy, amazing. The cross, peculiar, holy, amazing, and testifying to the validity and the true nature of Jesus. Even at the very end, like we see in Mark, like one of the centurions who had probably marched him to the cross, who had probably been one of the people yelling, crucify him, in Mark chapter 15, after Jesus releases his spirit, and after he says, it is finished, after he says, "Uh, Father, accept me, after he says all of those things, that centurion looks up and he's like, oh man, he really was the son of God. Even to a Roman centurion who everything he had been trained in Uh, discipled in to a degree, should say, I should hate this man. He looked at the blood of Jesus and he said, really, he was the Christ. The baptism testified, the, the blood that was shed, yes, it testifies too. You don't have to take my word for it. And then he gives the third, and he says, uh, just to reread verse 6, he says, This is who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit at the end of verse 6, is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The third that he says testifies is, is the Spirit, that now as a result of our bond to God, which is permanent, indwelling, the Spirit is the one who testifies inwardly to us on behalf of God. Now, here's, here's the tricky part. 
at some point or another, like we've been living in a beautiful Christian bubble as a country for a long, long time. Like to be honest, like if we look at the scope of history, the church has not existed the way it's existed in the United States for 600 some odd years. Okay, it it hasn't. Like in the rest of the world, if you claim to be a Christian, there's a good chance that it could cost you your job, it could cost you your family, it could cost you your family's life, it could cost you your life. In our country, it it really hasn't cost us very much at all yet. I'm not not trying to prophesy, I'm not trying to scare people. I think it will. I think the day is coming where it's going to cost us a lot, and that's okay. As a matter of fact, we've been told to expect it. But in this Christian bubble that we've lived in, like it, it hasn't cost us very much. The only thing that it may have cost us at some point is people's words towards us. Because at some point or another, this Christ whom we claim, that's been testified by the water, that's been testified by the blood, and that is also testified inwardly to us by the Spirit that is the seal and the redemptive force, the convicting force of God in us, at some point, people are going to try to contradict that voice around us. They're going to tell you, that thing that you believe in, that... That mumbo-jumbo of Jesus is just not real. But that's one of the other reasons that Jesus gave us this spirit, to testify on his behalf inwardly to us that when when those words come, when those pressures come, no matter how loud they are, this can be louder. No matter what they testify to, this can testify stronger. The spirit that is truth lives in us, dwells in us, speaks to us, and directs us. To yes, everything you've heard, everything you've seen, no matter what anyone else says, it's true. It's trustworthy. It's more than valid. It's eternally necessary. He says there are three that testify. The the water that we saw through the baptism, which we didn't get to see, and these people probably didn't get to see, but they heard people telling the stories over and over, and they were like, you should have seen it. The sky split. A big bird, a God bird flew down. I mean, just, you know, crazy things like the language. The spirit descended like a dove. It's a God bird. I mean, just crazy stuff. And then God boomed from the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love him. By the way, he was well pleased before he ever did a single thing. But anyway, that's, man. And then the the death on the cross. Odd, not normal, out of the ordinary. A blameless man positioned between two outwardly sinful people who probably deserve to be up there. And he's not condemning a soul. And he's not even trying to get himself off. Crazy. And then he says, but I also leave you with the Spirit that will testify louder while inside of you than anyone who will ever be outside of you. Man, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that we have three. Verse 9, it says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has concerning his Son. And so we can look at all three of these, the water, uh, the death, and the spirit that is in us, and we can kind of put a couple lines out. If you've got one, two, three in points, you put a line out and you point them all towards God because this is what God did so that we could see and know him through Jesus. And so if we want to thank somebody for that, we say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for testifying to Jesus through the baptism. Thank you, God, for testifying to Jesus through his death. Thank you, God, for sending the Spirit to testify to me concerning Jesus. God did all of that. Not us, not the church, not a system, not a political party. No, God. God did all of that so that we may know, and so that we may be known. 
verse 10, here comes our, our if-then statement for this passage. Verse 10, um, and we'll throw it up and, yeah, that's exactly what I want. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If then, if we believe in what God has shown us in these three areas, then that same testimony that he's shown us now lives in us. And I know that sounds rather redundant and a little bit wordy, but understand, everything that he's been showing us to point towards Jesus now dwells in me, now dwells in you. Why is that important? Because he gave it to us for a reason. He didn't give it to us just to solidify our beliefs, but he gave it to us so that we can convey it to others so that he could use it to solidify what they believe. The testimony has been placed in us and it needs to be reproducible. It needs to be spoken. It needs to be told. It needs to be shared. The testimony in us. And he even describes it just a a couple verses down in verse 11. And it says the testimony, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. The conversations came up in community groups this week about evangelism, about what that looks like, about what it does, about why it's there, about why we need to do it, about the difficulty that it presents, about all those things. And man, right here, it tells us the simplicity of it. It tells us the simplicity of what we need to repeat verbally, of what we need to reproduce livingly and verbally. It tells us that what is in us must come out. It says this is the testimony right here. Uh, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and that eternal life is just through his son. That's it. That's it. We believe that, that we need to have like points A through Z memorized just to convince somebody of their need for Jesus. Here, he says, look, the testimony that has been echoed through eternity uh, by the baptism, by the death, by the very spirit in you that has been placed in you as a means for reproduction is just simply this. I have eternal life and it's only through Jesus. I have eternal life and it's only through Jesus. That's what we must convey. That's what we must share. That's what we must tell. Yes, do we live it out? Absolutely. But do we verbally express it? Yes, we must. Why? Same reason I had the conversation with my son this week. Crazy. Like we talked about it last night, yesterday when we were painting. Like in the car this week, the the conversation came up like, uh, Caleb wants to live in the country instead of the city. Like I don't blame him. Like I grew up in the country. I'm I'm a country boy. You you may not know that. might not be evident. But I am. Like I'm a country boy. I, I like... You know, I'd, I'd rather wear boots than shoes with laces on them. I would, you know, I would rather walk to the mailbox in whatever we call pajamas that really weren't pajamas. You know, I would rather do all those things. I would, but Caleb and I were talking like, why do we live in the city versus the country? And I said, well, buddy, I said, the same reason that so-and-so lives here and so-and-so lives there. I said, we've been called by God to this city, for this city, for the glory of God. And I said, there are people living in the city right now that if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus, guess what? They'll be cut off for eternity. They'll spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And my son knows the gospel, but yet he's still still learning and he's still growing. And we had to talk about, like, the nature of what separation looks like. Like, what is that to truly be separated from God? And I said, said, buddy, if if we really believe that, then we're going to see that it's worth living in the city instead of the country so that people may know Jesus. Because if they don't know Jesus and they'll be cut off. And I said, that's terrible, right? And he said, yeah, that's terrible. We have to understand that this testimony is here because people must hear it. Because without the testimony that attests to the the true saving nature of Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope. 
The testimony is that I have eternal life, and it's only through Jesus. By contrast to that, if we don't have Jesus, we don't have eternal life, and that separation is horrible. It is worse than we can imagine. We should love people enough that this testimony that has been placed in me must be reproduced. If it costs us relationships, fine. If it costs us jobs, fine. If it costs us everything, fine. Someone's eternity is worth it. Correct? It must be worth it. If someone was standing in front of a moving bus, would we not risk everything that we have to push them out of the way, even if it costs me my life? Absolutely. The gospel is the same way. There is a bus that is called eternity moving towards every single living soul. And on the side of that is either life with Jesus or life apart from Jesus. My world should collapse if I know that I could rescue them and I did not. The testimony that exists in me must be reproduced for the glory of God and the salvation of those who would believe. There's no way around it. There's no plan B. There's no other option. Eternal life is a result of Jesus and Jesus alone. And he says, I have put that in you so that you may share it with someone else. The weight of the gospel is heavy but it's beautiful. The weight of the gospel at sometimes can feel like it's crushing. At the other time, it can feel like it's liberating. It must come out. There is no plan B. He said, these three testify so that you can believe, so that you may know, so that you can be sure of what you believe, but these three testify and are reproduced in you so that you may share with others, so that they may know, so that they may believe, so that they may have the same exact assurance and relationship that you have. That's heavy. But it's real. If we walk around thinking that this gospel is for me, but it might not be for everybody else, I think we've missed the truth of all of this. We've missed the truth that the gospel is the only way. We've bought into the cultural lie that, you know, as long as you believe something, you will be okay ultimately. But it's not true. God's not in the business of, of just relocation. He's in the business of redemption, but redemption only occurs through Jesus. A relationship with, the, that, with him that occurs through this supernatural transaction that I can't completely explain, that I can't completely understand but I can hear and do my best to be obedient to. It says that I am to go. I am to make disciples of all people, wherever they are, wherever I am. And that the power of the living God is in me to make sure that it happens. I don't have to do it under, under my own understanding. I don't have to do it under on, on my own. I don't have to do it with my own strength. I get to do it because God has placed something in me that says I must and that I can. That's not left up to ministers and pastors. No, it's left up to the people of God, period. We left it up to pastors for generations in this country. We can't do it anymore. We can't. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've all been made ministers or servers of the gospel, every single one of us. Every single one. We've all been made like waiters and waitresses with the gospel on our tray, and we're supposed to take it every single place that we go. Is it because of our sufficiency and because of our goodness? No, it's because of Jesus, period. But we get to take it, every single one. 
I mean, do the math for just a minute. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want to give us an honest perspective here. Uh, say, for instance, in, the, in, in South Carolina, we have 700 churches. Let's just say, and we have way more than that. Let, let's just guess 700 churches, right? Of those churches, uh, they may have 1.25 pastors in each church, okay? I can't do the math, but let's say that's like 925 people. I'm just doing it really, really quick right now, and I'm a product of public education, so my math could be way off. But we look at the whole state of South Carolina, and we, if we're placing the gospel just on pastors and ministers, 900 people compared to the whole state, how many people do we think are actually going to hear the gospel? Not very many. I mean, yeah, a lot, but, but not as many as we need. But imagine if entire bodies of believers, local churches, local bodies of believers who are gathered together under the name of Jesus with the equipping of the Holy Spirit, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and with Scripture and with the gospel on our trays that we take to our neighbors and our coworkers and our kids and those people that we just meet while pumping gas. Imagine if that happens. What happens? How dare we walk around with the gospel without sharing it? I'm sorry. Like, that's where I am. How dare we walk around with the gospel in me that has redeemed me and not share it? I remember watching a video by, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Penn and Teller, but I used to, man, they used to make me laugh a lot. They were uh, magicians and comedians, and Penn is also a vocal agnostic, an atheist. And they were interviewing him several years ago, and and he was, uh, he was talking about one of the main reasons that he doesn't believe in Christianity is he meet people, meets people that call themselves Christians who supposedly have this life-saving knowledge in them, but they're unwilling to share it. He's like, it can't be that good if so many people claiming Jesus don't actually talk about it. He's like, because, you know, just rationally thinking, if, if I could save someone from dying by getting hit by a bus, wouldn't I do that, right? I would do that. And he's like, how are all these people walking around with something that they say has saved them and can save them for eternity, yet they're unwilling to share it? He's like, I just can't believe that. So I don't believe them, and I'm not going to believe that. Man, the greatest proof of Jesus is going to be a changed life that talks about it. Hear me. The greatest proof of Jesus is going to be a changed life that talks about it. He said, been put in you is this testimony that you have eternal life, and that eternal life is through Jesus. We have to share it. Have to share it in word, have to share it in deed, and we have to share it. I have to share it. So will our words, will they agree with the three? Like, that's the question. Like, these three that testify, these three that say Jesus is it. He's peculiar, he's odd, he's holy, he's everything. Those three that testify, will my words agree with that? Will my life echo that? God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have placed something in us that is worth sharing, that's worth reproducing, that's worth showing, telling repeatedly. God, forgive us for sitting on such great a gift. Forgive me, God, for all the times in which I know that I should have spoken, that I should have shared. God, that I should have been incredibly intentional with my words to echo your testimony. God, producing us a boldness that as a result of this thing that you have placed in us will not allow us to remain silent. No matter the costs, no matter the blowback, no matter, no matter what, God, 
If you say speak, God, I pray that we would speak and we would wait for you to tell us to stop. God, this city is beautiful, it's amazing, but God, I also know that it's majorly lost. And you've called us to be here for a reason, the same reason you've placed this testimony in me, in us. God, you've placed us here in this city amongst it, amongst them, those who are perishing because they don't know you. God, I pray that your gospel would go out through this church and our partner churches in this city and many would come to call you Jesus, Savior, friend, and they could know God and be known by him. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for not leaving it up to us to reach you, but you reaching us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.